and thank you for listening. My name is Victoria Carrasco. I work at the Five Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal as gallery manager and adjunct curator of public programs. In this podcast, I will exchange with artist Dora Garcia in conjunction with the presentation of Two Planets Have Been Colliding for Thousands of Years, presented from July 7th to August 1st, 2021 at the Five Foundation. In Dora Garcia's Two Planets Have Been Colliding for Thousands of Years, two performers face each other, their gazes interlock. Each is positioned inside one of two non-concentric circles. As one performer moves, the other must alter their position to maintain a constant distance, which they agreed to keep between them at the beginning of the performance. All of this happens while the performers maintain eye contact. At some point, however, This becomes impossible as the circles are not concentric. When this happens, the performers must start over in an endless game of continual negotiation. The presentation of this performance by Dora Garcia offers the Montreal community an opportunity to reconnect during the pandemic and to experience ways of healing through movement. The coronavirus crisis has created a breach between the current practices of the performers and those of the past, even as negotiations with regard to space, meaning, and touch redefine the future of live artworks. Two Planets Have Been Colliding for Thousands of Years provides a space of mediation and collaboration for performers to react to one another and communicate body to body as instructed by the artist, and for the public to reflect on the length of time that we have passed in confinement in our city. Hi, Dora. Thank you for agreeing to present Two Planets Have Been Colliding for Thousands of Years at the Foundation. It's not the first time we present your work. Uh, we have also presented still this book in 2017, part of our 10-year anniversary exhibition entitled L'Offre. I would like to spend a little time and talk about the year that has passed and reflect on a few projects and on the performance we are presenting at the Foundation. You have a relationship with Montreal in Canada when you exhibited at the Darling Foundry in 2014 and at the Power Plant in 2015. It would be long to encapsulate your work through the years. I would like to focus on your performance work here and there. You had a major retrospective at the Reina Sofia in Spain covering a nine-year period where you presented several performances. Before the start of the pandemic, you had a first solo in the United States. Uh, Love with Obstacles at the Rose Art Museum, also the presentation of a component of the Romeos in Frankfurt this year, if I'm not mistaken. You are also part of uh, Rose Hammer, a collective with whom you worked on a play that became a podcast called The Radical Flu. Um, how has the last year been for you? Yes, it has been uh, weird and uh, it's far from over. And uh, so uh, when I when it, the whole thing started, I, I received it as a big blessing because I was uh, totally exhausted. I was uh, having three teaching jobs and uh, exhibitions, uh, and I was constantly traveling, uh, sometimes in very strange circumstances because I made mistakes. So famously, for instance, in my in the Darling Foundry, I booked wrong the, the day and I had to leave the, the Darling Foundry in the middle of a performance uh, because I just had booked the wrong day. So these kind of mistakes uh, happen all the time because Uh, I don't have an assistant. I cannot afford an assistant. So I had to do everything myself. And logically, when you make maybe three or four trips per week, it was really 
insane. Uh, and I had started this uh, travel. Ne I never had this before. I could deal with it because I had very good health. I slept super well in any circumstances. But this started to change in 2019 when I started to have trouble sleeping. And then uh, I was a bit in a crisis. And then all of a sudden, from one day to the next, I ran to home in order to be able to spend the, the confinement, the big, big confinement uh, at home. And so I, I was uh, with my family for three months, which never happened. I think never happened in my life. And then, uh, I mean, when my kids were small, of course, uh, I took them with me, but then it, it was like one of my family with me, but not all of us together. So it was nice. I, I have a positive uh, uh, impression. Of course, it was not so nice like with so many others uh, regarding income, uh, uh, many projects that were uh, canceled. I was lucky that I had a teaching job, so that allowed the minimum, survival minimum. Uh, but, you know, things were delayed and delayed and delayed uh, and now keep on being delayed, actually, in many parts of, uh, of the world. And many things were not possible, but uh, I always, I'm a big believer of adaptation, adapt or die. And, uh, and so I changed a lot of things to make possible. So like the Romeos, that was a bit, uh, uh, how to say, a bit forced, but we went to TikTok uh, with the Romeos, which I discovered TikTok because I had, they had no idea about TikTok before. We did podcasts uh, of the, the Radical Flu, which was meant to be a theater play. Uh, it transformed into a podcast. Um, I did a lot of things uh, uh, online, a distance. I have always done a lot of things online, so it was not so uh, strange for me. So I kept, uh, I kept working. And it allowed me a little bit of peace uh, to concentrate on different things. And our biggest achievement is that we managed, I was supposed to do a film in Mexico, uh, but I was, and you know, with films, you have this thing, you have this, you have to spend it this year. You won't be able to keep your funding for next year. So I imagine a, a way of working, a collective way of working, and we have managed to have make this film, even when uh, I didn't put um, set foot in Mexico at all, but I worked with a series of uh, cinematographers there, uh, where I told them what I wanted to have, and they filmed it for me, and, uh, and now we're finishing the editing of this film. So it was, uh, okay, it was good. Uh, many access expenses was good, mostly because nobody in my family got sick. And uh, so we didn't have anything, any big regrets in that regard. But of course, I, I feel, I mean, it was terrible. When we were in the big confinement, 600 people dying per day. Uh, you know, this is very heavy uh, to, to read that and to to absorb and to live those information. Yeah, can be very heavy. I think that's, a, well, it's the first time it happens during our lifetime, I have to say, like something as big as this. Well, for some of us, because other countries and other worlds have, have, have lived the, you know, war, but I'm happy to hear that at first it came, it came up as a blessing because of time. Uh, and that you were able to to rest and also well congratulations for your production and that it did happen uh, well probably in a different way but it, it that you know, you managed to make it happen uh, congratulations uh, I think that's also a big achievement considering everything we've been living your work can appear very simple uh, at first but has complex roots in a variety of fields uh, philosophy mental health etc 
uh, and have a radical and activist aura where the simplicity of a one-liner dissimulates a cautionary tale, making information or content accessible that could be acquired by small circles, uh, an elite, or even punks. In relation to the times we are living, art and the institution as we know it, it seems to be losing relevance and doesn't seem to be in touch with reality. I'd like to hear from you about that. I've been thinking about the impossibility of um, the white cube uh, or the gallery spaces. Uh, the changes this impossibility contributes to contemporary art and also extemporary art, I'd like to include it there. And mostly the place and space for performance uh, per se. Um, seeing the year that has passed, the now and the possible future, we can see and experience the certain impossibility of such a space and its constraints to accommodate human beings. Yes, I think all that is for me a, a motive or a reason of big celebration. Uh, I think many things that we consider that were really necessary, for instance, when I spoke, I said before that I was not feeling very well, uh, that I started to have trouble sleeping, somehow I was also uh, aware that the way I was living, it was not the way I should live, neither for me, nor for my family, nor for the planet, you know, uh, it is not possible to have all these plane trips. And I also was becoming very much aware. I mean, it's not that it was the first time that I was aware, but it was becoming unbearable how much um, this way of um, what is called the art circuit, how much uh, neoliberalism was in it, how much competence was in it, uh, how much uh, business, uh, even if as artists, you, of course, uh, somehow you are a bit uh, far from it, but you're aware that there is a lot of uh, pressure for the, the art first, uh, all these kind of uh, a circuit to keep uh, where people keep telling you, you know, you cannot take two days off, uh, two years off. Uh, you take two years off, it's very hard to come back. Uh, you have to keep on producing. You need to have like a solo show. I mean, these are things that I heard since I was in art school. Uh, and all of a sudden they became unbearable. And the same way you also become aware of how little this has to do with uh, people and you wonder for who are you working so all these things were like there, brewing. And then when the pandemic came, it's like everybody, you know, everybody was on their computers, uh, talk, chatting, talking with uh, other people in the social media or WhatsApp. And uh, there was a lot of talk and a lot of texts uh, running around that spoke, you know, the future museum. I remember, uh, especially um, an article by Marco Baravalle, uh, which is someone I know from Venice, uh, on the biennial ruins, it was called, where he said the Venice biennial has to change radically. It's not possible to continue as it is. The Venice biennial is the model for the biennial explosion, which is also not so old. Uh, so it's really in the, the explosion of biennials begins in the 20, with the 2000, before there were just five or six, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, everybody, there was a biennial. And of course, a biennial has a, a form of economy, city branding linked to Airbnb and all this kind of uh, fake share culture. Uh, this is all mixed together and it has to change. Uh, there were other articles like from uh, Paolo Martinez uh, on uh, the museum, the future museum, in which uh, he's uh, advocating, you know, uh, uh, how do you uh, situate the museum in the neighborhood, how you cannot cater for uh, some sort of uh, permanent flying jet set 
that comes to the opening and will never come back uh, and that you need to have a museum that is daily, a daily presence in the lives of the people who live around. Uh, um, he was also speaking about the need to education. How do you have to, put, uh, to give education a bigger weight in the future museum? And even to more radical uh, proposals that were not, as I said, they had been going on for a while, but now it was like, finally they got everybody's attention. Uh, like the situated museum uh, that uh, in the case of the Reina Sofia, they have been doing uh, real wonders on how you, um, the museum is just one element more in the neighborhoods that listens to whatever is going on in the neighborhood and helps those people with needs of space, simply for instance, giving them a space, with needs of communication, with needs of uh, speaking up, you know, functioning as a platform for these people to speak up. The, the, a big part of the museum should be that. And a big part of the museum should be as well, um, how to integrate. Uh, integrate is already a bad word. Uh, had to give a place to many uh, in the community that don't have a place, and so this uh, the situated museum uh, is a, a project uh, of the Reina Sofia, for which I am very much identified, and also made me rethink a lot of these things. But it also applied to the art schools, for instance, uh, in the art schools where there has been an absurd. On the one hand, a sort of absurd debate, should we uh, have queer theory, for instance? I mean, this is Europe, and in Europe, some people are still surprised. Uh, should we have queer theory? Should we learn about post-colonial theory? And it is a bit like, you know, like people are complaining that there is uh, someone in the house, but that someone in the house has been there already for 20 years. It's like, you know, if you if you don't know more about this, is because you have willfully ignored it because it's there. And so you have to deal with uh, with colonialists. You have to deal with uh, with queer theory because it is just you who are just you know blind to it because it's in front of you. So this is one thing, and uh, as well on the other feminism and questions like uh, uh, you know um, sexual harassment, uh, violence, sexual violence. These are things. That have been, you know, I have been, I studied in the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. I had to, it was an extremely sexist uh, art school. It was something that was uh, a given, you know, that there were teachers that would try to directly harass you, uh, would be inappropriate. You were uh, taught how to fence with that, but it was completely out of the question to denounce it or to say something because it was clear that no one would listen. You know, you just had to you rely on the on the solidarity of uh, of others uh, to try to not to fall into any this uh, unpleasant situation. And now, for the first time in my school, which is in Oslo, in the last five years, there have been people held accountable for this. Uh, as much in the school as in the art business. So this is a big change that will not go away. I don't think this is something that there is no way back. And this is something that is fantastic. Uh, of course, there's still a lot to do, uh, but I have the impression that uh, also the, the pandemic and the capacity to imagine that things could be different uh, and that we do not, you know, even there is a, a kind of revival or uh, they stop vilifying the world's communism because the common in communism is something we all like now because we are aware of how much we need uh, public health care, for instance, and all this kind of network of, uh, of care, uh, interdependence. These are all things that are 
in the common of communism. If you uh, kind of detach uh, communism from the Stalinism, from uh, Soviet history, there is this idea of the common and how you can uh, create, for instance, an art world that is not competitive, that it is uh, solidaire, that uh, where everybody is actually uh, helping each other out and not just, you know, trying to sink them, the lower they sink, the higher I'll raise to abandon this sort of uh, of uh, uh, form of uh, professionalization. This is what they taught me when they taught me professionalization, basically was the lower they sing, the higher you raise. So I should be happy with the misfortunes of my colleagues because that was good news for me. So it is good that this is um, it's never going to come back. It's buried and death. I'm not sure if that was who you asked me. <laughs> well, yes, yes. Uh, actually, yes. Uh, I think that, um, well, in any case, later we can come back to the question also in regards to your work specifically. Uh, but I but I do feel like it, it's all connected because your work addresses, you know, space. And, and even though this is a large, you know, a larger story that you're, you're part of it. Um, and so it's totally, you know, thank you, of course, for your answer. Uh, I do feel like it's a relief what's happening right now. It's less of a competition and, and trying to be more of a fair, I guess, uh, world. Um, but there's still a lot of work um, ahead of us. Um, and also to see how each environment reacts actually in changing their art world it happens sort of like a, like a clock. In some areas, it's a bit more slow to happen. Uh, I guess it depends also of, of you know, uh, social uh, realities or immediate uh, crisis, for an example. So to think of, of the museum as an open space for people to, to be able to engage and, and have a voice uh, is still very utopian, is a utopian concept. But in some environments, I've seen it happen more organically uh, and happen more organically, but be less recognized. So it's just kind of a natural, I guess, organization. So it, it's interesting to see, you know, these dynamics and how we call things at a certain time. Well, the current climate and presence of performance in a museum or gallery space uh, begs for various questions. I think it's tied to what we were just discussing. Who's performing? Who's being represented? Whose voice is included? Who's marginalized? Who's occupying the space? Whose profession is performance, actually? Who are we reaching out with this? The conditions usually applied to inanimate objects are often uh, applied to performance, uh, mistakenly or not. Is there an ideal space for you uh, or a right space in the end? And what do you think of what is happening in the streets at the moment? This is an example, movements like the one Las Tesis started sí, uh, in sí. Chile with Un Violador en Tu Camino. Yes, actually the film I'm making, uh, I made, uh, that we're finishing it has, is about that. So yes, so performance, then given the so there's a long history of performance, of course. We can identify more or less uh, from the in the 20s with Dada, some some forms of dance in the 20s, then jump to the 50s with um with uh, Alan Capro, that has been very important for me. Uh, so this uh what was called happening. I made this work on Oscar Masota, uh, that was called happening. So nowadays uh, what we call performance is almost practically everything that develops in time. 
and that implies an uh, element of uh, life presence. It doesn't necessarily imply, uh, not even public, uh, it, doesn't, it has been, um, what I mean to say is that under this umbrella of performance, there are a lot of things. Under the umbrella of performance, uh, we place a lot of many different practices that actually are very different uh, in the way that some, some are very, very close to dance, uh, some are very close to theater, they keep even this matrix of theater with public that uh, sits down, claps at the end, uh, and others, they are very dissolved in everyday life, uh, like uh, things that instructions that people have to carry on uh, in their daily lives, where there is practical, when there is no audience, but only maybe the, the, the narrative of, the, of this person. I'll just to say that there is just a very wide scope of activities, where I would say that the only thing they have in common is time. And, uh, and practice, a certain form of practice. So uh, I have always worked in the performance I have done, I have always worked very much in the margins, in the sense that almost in a part where performance solves uh, with daily life, uh, where it is very hard. I always enjoy very much that it's very hard to identify who's performing and who's not, who's the performer, how long it, it lasts, is it already performing or maybe it's not performing yet, what does the performance really consist of? So my intention was always to create a feeling of um, disconcert, uh, of alertness in the public where they realize that there is something going on. And they're not, but they don't know exactly what it is. And they might be part of it. That's what they, I love this part, this moment when you say, perhaps I am part of it. I made, for instance, uh, one of the first performances was called The Crowd, in which it was, the whole game was that they were in a crowd. There were some people who were carrying out actions. And actually the performance ended the moment the public identified the performers. So there was just a crowd that were there for something else, normally for to see another performance or maybe for a party. And then they were not said, they were aware that something was wrong. And the performance ended the moment they say, oh, those people are actually performing. They're actually actors. So this was very much the things I was doing at the beginning of the, in 2000. And later on, it evolved to, although I always did that, uh, kept doing this, it evolved to forms that are more uh, theatrical until doing real, like theater or other forms that were uh, more museum-like in the sense that they were really thought uh, with the idea of a, of a public that passes by and with the idea uh, of, a, of a collection, like for instance, the Artists Without Works, which is a guided tour. Uh, I have done uh, two or three guided tours. I have played a lot with the figure of the, of the guide. Uh, with the figure of the person who gives information. So with all these kind of uh, um, invisible people that are in institutions, uh, and this is all coming from a sociology from the 70s. I have read a lot of uh, Erwin Goffman, for instance, um, uh, and I enjoy to work with this kind of margins of the event. Like for instance, in theater, when you change uh, decor, you know, you have these people dressed in black that are changing things, but you're supposed not to see them. They don't exist. Uh, and so uh, I always like to work with people that you actually think they belong to the institution or they belong to the place and you shouldn't pay attention to them. For instance, instant narrative 
is very paradigmatic of this, that when you enter the space, you just see somebody typing on a computer and then you assume it's somebody working in the institution for whatever. And then only later you see what that person is typing and then you realize that actually that person is observing you and describing you and what you do. And at that moment that you realize that the whole thing changes because you realize that you are the one who's performing. Um, so I like a lot these sort of games. But now to go to the last part of the question, in the last 10 years, there has been an explosion in museums and performance. Everybody wants to have performance. And I think what the most interesting thing of this is that this has placed labor at the center of, of uh, the museum institution in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, it is very well established when a, an actor or a performer works in a theatrical matrix or a, yeah, in a theater matrix, it is very clear because it has been established already for many years, how much money the person gets, uh, the insurance, uh, all the labor conditions, but nothing is arranged in the museum. And so that means that when, uh, for instance, when I started to, to do performance, and I, there were people who were not working because it's different when, they, when the artist performs itself, like Marina Abramovich, for instance, that's a, you can still uh, deal with the economy of the arts. But when there are other performers that you tell what they should do or that you say, well, this is the situation and then you have to do, then the question is what, what status do they have? And this is something that has been very interesting. It has come with uh, sometimes with a lot of pain and sometimes with a lot of joy. So what I mean to say, it was always been a lot of resistance from the museum, whether to pay them properly. Uh, the only name they had for them was assistance, which is not a good name uh, for performers, uh, but that's what an artist has, assistance. Um, so all this, uh, it, there has to be uh, quite a lot of change on the on the schema or parameters that the museum has about life action in the museum, uh, like to establish insurances, establish uh, a wage that was, um, because the truth is that museums want to have performances all the time, but they cannot pay them. I mean, I'm speaking in general, of course, to make them understand that they have to pay it. Uh, when they cannot pay it, uh, um, then the artist has to make the decision you know, uh, am I going to accept this? Or I am going to say there is no performance. Uh, so all these things, complicated things um, have uh, uh, come to the surface, but they also have come to the surface with other people that are in the institution, like for instance, the guards, because once I was discussing how much would be the minimum wage for a performer and I say, well, you know, you have the minimum wage, which you cannot go down from that, that's for sure. But then I learned that the that the guards they they earn less than that they earn less than the, than the minimum wage, so then you're discovering you're doing these labor things and then you say but actually you know the museum and that's what I mean by the neoliberalism. I'm speaking of very specific museums like the like the Magba or like the Schinkunshalle. Uh, or like the museum in uh, Stockholm, then you realize that actually there is a lot of people that are unfairly paid uh, and not only the performers. And then you start, you know, tying up things and thinking, well, actually, you know, artists, um, it is not uh, very recently they have a union, for instance, that will defend them, but you are totally defenseless. Uh, in most countries, if you complain about your fee in many countries, in Germany, for instance, 
is relatively new that artists get a fee. Uh, they never thought of that before. There is no regulation of the fee of the artists. Uh, so all this comes somehow together. And it's, it's interesting. I think it's at the very core of performance because it really affects the performance of many other performers uh, that are in the, in the institutional space and that were invisible before like guards or like uh, guides or, you know, you have the freelance guides, uh, all these people that in fact are uh, operating in this kind of transmission change of the from the art to the public, which I think is the area with the biggest changes and the biggest growth in this museum of the future that we're trying to construct. The presentation of two planets, um... Two planets have been colliding for thousands of years. Uh, it's been presented already. It's been presented in a few venues. Uh, it's been presented in 2017 at the Fondation d'Entreprise Hermès. It was also presented in your retrospective, in a sense, at the Reina Sofia, Bonnier Constal. Uh, I guess at the last one, it would be at the Gropiusbau and also at the Rose Art Museum. Within this presentation of two planets have been colliding for thousands of years, uh, the situation of live performance and human beings have been pushed to extremes in the last year, as we know. Um, this performance is a durational one where two performers follow the instructions of a game where they have to negotiate space and comfort with their gaze. This performance is inevitably intense at the moment because of what we are experiencing, social distancing, loneliness, boundaries, um, for this particular piece, I found that uh, it is often, well, I've seen it as a, a really passive piece uh, in a sense where we're sort of marking time, um, especially when it's accompanied by other artworks in a space the way you've presented in the past. Um, for this iteration presented by itself, I'd like to talk about passivity and intrusion. It seemed important at the moment for me to be able to present this piece um, and help reconnect with our lives and space. Also to be able to encourage performance and live arts uh, in a safe environment in a shaky economy. This performance is based on a drawing and clear instruction on how to transfer or execute that drawing onto the floor. Uh, the instructions are in a way a performance in itself. Uh, in a past conversation, you said that you use drawing as a catalyst in reaction to a surplus of information. Um, there seems to be a process, a transformation and transposition of certain information from reading to writing to drawing, um, the creation of a language that you repeat and spread through your work. Um, can you tell us a bit more on this specific drawing for Two Planets? I've noticed that in some iterations, there's also a second drawing part of of, uh, of two planets. For this one, we chose only one, but uh, I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, it's know. not. It's there are two different works. Uh, so uh, I start. I always have made uh, drawings, um, like a small drawings. You know, uh, I have like cahiers of drawings, and very often I use them when I read text. I read some very complex text which I need uh, diagrams to understand uh, or to keep fix it in my memory. Uh, at the time I studied all these drawings, uh, I was reading Lacan and this needs a lot of drawing. And, uh, but also Heidegger, uh, you know, um, I was reading all these and then you need a lot of schemas uh, and they also the schemas are very beautiful. So it is a sort of, uh, uh, 
language or, or, or theory that really creates very beautiful images uh, in the mind. And then I just try to fix them. And I have done many, I started to call them uh, math marginal charts. Uh, this was in 2014. Um, and this all came because uh, so a friend curator asked me to explain um, what I was doing. And then I made this drawing that was so complex uh, to explain what I was doing. You know, I'm interested in this, but then also interested in that. And this connects to this because of that, because of that. And so that was the first chart I made. And then uh, we, I started to call it, to give it that name. And it has been it's since 2014, officially starting uh, these drawings, I went on. And in uh, many exhibitions since then, uh, I think the first one was actually in the Darling Foundry when there were these drawings. I started to draw them on the on the wall, so to make them bigger. Because for me, uh, this was a very nice and convincing way to kind of uh, show uh, uh, how to say the association of ideas that was behind uh, all all the things. So it was a bit like the the visitor would be in the middle of a big diagram uh, of things. Uh, so this is how it started. Uh, and you can see images, for instance, of the exhibition in the um, um, in the other place in Canada, uh, the plant, no, not the planet, the, the, power, the power plant, plant. <laughs> the power plant in the power plant where there was a, a whole wall uh, full with that. Uh, and almost every every drawing I have done, every exhibition I have done has this sort of uh, of diagrams. So when I started uh, the two planets, uh, it was first a diagram on the wall. Uh, it's drawn on the wall on a sort of wallpaper that I use with functions like paper. Uh, and it came from a conversation uh, I had with two friends uh, that we were discussing the relations between poetry and uh, visual arts. We were discussing the relationship between poetry and visual arts and how they come together and how they... And then uh, uh, there was uh, this image of uh, the two trees uh, that like they are uh, growing next to each other, but they don't really mess, uh, only get together at the top with the, with the branches, but they are two different. So we were discussing about this. And then my friend said, but you know, uh, sometimes systems, uh, uh, they have been, uh, uh, they violently crash. Like for instance, they say that two planets have been colliding for thousands of years. At the end, they were not planets, they were galaxies. They are galaxies, they are not planets. Uh, a planet is cannot be peacefully getting to another planet. It's quite a catastrophe what that happens by galaxies. Apparently they can do it in a way they both survive. But by then, the, the name was already there and I thought it was much more beautiful, this idea of, uh, and I was thinking of also, of course, of the of Melancholia, this, uh, this film of Lars von Trier, where you have this image where uh, a bigger uh, um, planet eats the earth. Uh, and so I imagine this uh, in a way that when you eat, uh, when a planet eats, eats another, uh, then you have this uh, small planet inside the big planet. And this is how the, the drawing came to, so first it was the drawing and then it came the performance. Uh, so uh, at that time I was uh, drawing on the walls and I was drawing on the floor. I found this famous painting that we keep discussing uh, the composition of this painting, uh, a white paint that you can use on the wall, on the floor, and that normally you will be able to, to clean it up later on uh, because it was very important for me to have this kind of um, temporality. Uh, also the drawings, 
uh, are things that uh, you will just peel off and sometimes you can save a piece, but the whole thing uh, is fragmented. And the same way, the floor drawing, you just can wipe it out with, with water. It's a bit like drawing on the sands. And uh, when you draw this on the floor, then it immediately gives you the idea of an arena. So uh, from everything I, I do, there has been some sort of ancestors uh, before uh, people walking on on letters and uh, etc so in this case it was this arena and then uh, I developed a, a very simple performance uh, which was basically about uh, two people that can't leave their respective uh, areas that have been designated for them uh, but it also has something that is uh, that I have been working as, as long as I can remember, which is the dependence. So how you negotiate the space with someone else. There was performance from 2002, what was called the glass wall, in which two people were connected by a phone and they were giving mutual orders. They were far away, but then I could say to the one, now you start eating, and the other one could say, and you smoke. And they had no idea what the situ in which situations they were. So eating could be natural or it could be very violent, depending on which situation you were. Same thing with the smoking. So and it was this was for several days, and this created a very strange dependence between these two people. And I'm always been uh, very keen on exploring these associations. When you associate, you are connected to someone else. Immediately, there are some games. Uh, there is always a negotiation of freedom and submission and, uh, and power. Uh, even when you are, as you say, best of friends, there is always somebody who ad adopts a more easygoing, not passive, but easygoing role. And another one that is like more determined to say, well, this is the way things have to be. And uh, I am very interested in, in the negotiations of, uh, of two people that spend a lot of time together. Even the very idea to stare in the eyes of each other is already quite a, a challenge because it can be very, well, it's just very strong. Uh, the, the feedback I have from performance is that you get a sort of high uh, from it. You know, you get, you enter a sort of, uh, um, you lose uh, the concept of time and uh, you can be very surprised that two hours have passed by or you can be agonizing because you thought eight hours passed by and you've been for 10 minutes. So you get really lose uh, completely the, the sense of time. And, uh, and this is uh, what I find interesting to create uh, immediately another reality right in front of the visitors. And it's also like the creation of a relationship in between two people who might not know each other. I remember when, when we met a few months ago, uh, we met with you and, and uh, past performers who have performed the piece in the past. And, and they were mentioning that it, it would be best if, if the two partners, let's say, uh, in the performance wouldn't, uh, wouldn't know each other uh, and that it was best also to maybe not even rehearse and just get there and establish a relationship. How do you see that establishing, a, a, or, or I guess contributing in establishing relationships uh, amongst people, either the performers or even visitors? Um, and in this sense, um, that's why I was also thinking about, uh, well, passivity and intrusion, because I really see it as if we're going to, I guess, as viewers, be intruding in something very 
very unique that is happening in between two people uh, that that in the past in other iterations uh, that performance would be accompanied by other artworks where where then it would become a bit more um, perhaps maybe less intrusive um, Yes, uh, well, I have done uh, in the last uh, iteration in in the in Berlin in the Europius Bau. It was very similar situation to the one we have now, but with the difference perhaps that uh, people could pass by, uh, so you could go through, you you cross the room. I don't know if it is necessary not to know each other, but it is certainly not necessary to rehearse. I always like performances where you don't have to rehearse. So I like performances where you're given the, you know, this is this is the situation, just go and deal with it. Uh, there is no, this is nothing very much Caprovian, you know, for Capro, you could not rehearse a, a, a performance. I think he says something like, you can't rehearse life, so you cannot rehearse a performance either. So you say, this is the situation, uh, you have to do this, you have to do that, uh, just go and do it, and you will discover it while doing it. And uh, so th that's about all you need to know, uh, and many things can happen from then on. I have to say that uh, many couples have been born in two planets, in the sense that <laughs> if that is uh, what they mean about the relation between people. So many couples have been born in two planets, but uh, 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 that's one thing. I think maybe the, the eye gazing somehow, uh, you know, uh, helps for that. Um, but uh, uh, on the other hand, there has always been a lot of comradeship uh, built between performers without needing, having to get into uh, the love uh, realm. There has always been a, very, a lot of comradeship between the people performing because it is, you built a, a relation on this. And it is also nice to, um, you know, the, you, we have a lot of pictures of the moment where people substitute other people uh, because uh, it is really nice to see how com how completely changes the atmosphere depending on, on who's doing it. And sometimes someone, one of them stays and a new one comes in, like a bit like in the football matches and the chemi chemical is completely different between those uh, those two people from before so it is a kind of uh, performance that is very called you can spend and many people spend a lot of time just staring at this because you're really watching a relation between two people and uh, and this is always very entertaining so that's uh, what it is uh, it is also quite uh, important instruction is to say you're not performing for the audience you're performing for each other so it is important that they are aware uh, because the feeling is indeed, as you say, the public have to feel a bit like intruders. You know, there is something going on and we are just like catching it. We are given the possibility to look at it, but it is not really for us. It is not performed for us. They are performing for each other. And this is something that is, uh, I think that is what gives the strangeness to the to the piece. We did kind of brush on, on uh because I had read, well, I had heard you in an interview uh, at the Reina Sofia, where you were talking about you were always interested in performance that you did try to perform, but that uh, you were feeling not at ease and that uh, perhaps it was best for you to step back and not be at the forefront. Um, and, and, and that you were also interested by um, kind of the, the unofficial performances or, or in, in outdoor setting, like in the street, for an example. And uh, we did brush on the 
movements like the one that Stacy started. But I was curious to know how did that evolve for you, especially thinking that your career, and that's why when I was doing research, I found a bit uh, mysterious and enigmatic in a sense, because there is what, let's say, uh, is very well known in the arts, you know, like your presentation at the Venice Biennale, you know, like the big exhibitions, but you also work in, in another capacity. Well, to, to to my eyes, like in, in a more like DIY and official capacity, like uh, your work at the Hearing Cafes, for an example, or where there's something more connected to communities, where you work with communities and your work is also that you like to work um, with people and create relationships. And and so I was wondering, how did that interest in, in performing unofficially in a way or or presentations in the street evolved for you? I started, you know, I just thought, um, I have made, a, the Artists Without Works uh, sort of tells this story, which is a piece I made in 2009, in which somehow I didn't feel myself, I, I thought that there were a lot of things interfering if I was the performer. Uh, I was not able to judge the work properly because there were a lot of uh, issues of self-esteem, uh, self-image. I was, uh, I'm very shy. Uh, I hate people looking at me. I hate to see pe pictures of myself. So I was really not made for the Marina Abramovic type of performance. Um, and to me, it was a discovery uh, with Alan Capra, for instance, when I found out that actually you, others can perform for you. And others that are also liberated in a way because they are just following uh, not really an instruction, but that, you know, like a certain parameters, they just go on and they do it. They do it and that's it. Uh, and so this would be, for me, my idea. I create a situation and see how that situation develops. At a certain point, when this kind of became classic in 2007, in Muster Scattle projects, where I did the Vegas opera, uh, where there was this character that entered the city and started to live in the city like any anybody else, people were complaining that they could not find it. And that, you know, people who pay to see the exhibition, they say, well, we have the right to see all the pieces in this exhibition. And then there was an arrangement that uh, then the big art would go to a theater once a week and they would do some sort of stand-up. Uh, we didn't call it a stand-up. The idea was to do some sort of monologue with the same things that he wrote um, in the diary. Uh, but this became more and more sophisticated until it became a, a real stand-up. And, uh, and lots of people came to see it. And, and then at that moment, let's say, uh, it started to become political. When we started to de uh, understand the, pol the potential of that, and we teamed up with Right to the City. We invited people, uh, we invited uh, different collectives of the city to, to join us, like the homeless people, the people who complain about too high um, rental uh, prices. Uh, uh, and then uh, from that moment, it started to develop a big interest in how performance, if that work was called theater in public space, well, what about performance in public space? And there's already a lot of performance in public space and how this is negotiated. And there is a, a very nice tradition of intersection between arts and demonstrations, uh, uh, starting with the Situationist, uh, not starting, I mean, I'm sure before, starting with La Commune, 
and uh, in Paris. Sorry, I was not prepared for all these quotations. Uh, well, this this uh, the painter who made um, L'Origine du Monde. Uh, anyway, uh, he was uh, very active in La Commune and uh, provided, uh, you know, uh, with if you want, with some. Uh, uh, artistic advice on flags and on posters and how to move. Uh, and uh, so they started to be this uh, mutual enrichment between uh, street demonstrations and the arts. So this is, uh, when we speak of last thesis, uh, this is exactly the same movement, you know, it is actors, dancers, visual artists, part that they have, uh, of course, uh, they mostly they share uh, the vision of the people who are in the streets, because they are uh, mostly uh, of a left wing inclined, like any decent person should be. On the other hand, but uh, so they they identify with these uh, uh, movements, or you know, or the the pride parade, or the uh, LGBT rights. They belong to that community as well. Act up, for instance, or uh, when we speak of, as I said recently, of last thesis. There is a, it's just a very natural thing because they are both part of the artistic community, but they're also part of the community that is demonstrating. And so uh, I became very interested in what is the protocol of these things? How do you uh, give color and efficiency to messages, whether in pancart, you know, in science, demonstration science, but also in uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres as well is a big uh, name for this with these very uh, enigmatic uh, billboards that were uh, also uh, so clearly read by the AIDS devastated uh, gay community, all these kind of things uh, is a very rich tradition. And, uh, and so um, I started to, uh, to work on, on this uh, in this sense as well, uh, because in a way, you know, uh, I think the bigger, uh, desire as an artist is to be efficient uh, to the community. It's not exactly to be useful, but to mean something. And, and so in that sense, uh, it is only logical that you feel that you can put yourself at the service of uh, certain things that you can be useful with, uh, without, you know, without never completely abandoning a certain distance. Uh, that is what the art um, means. I mean, to me, it means distance, uh, but at the same time, it also means uh, engagement, uh, these two things at the same time. Thank you, Dora. Thank you so much for uh, meeting with me and, and recording this podcast. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to have you here. <laughs>